listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. And hi, I'm Daria Brown. We're back this week for part two of our podcast on the developmental capacities, engaging our capacities in meeting our children where they are developmentally. I have Colette back for part two. Colette Ryan is an infant mental health specialist. She's with the DIR Home Program at the International Council on Development and Learning. Welcome back, Colette. Thanks, guys. So I guess we'll we'll jump in uh, where we left off last week. If those of you uh, didn't hear last week's podcast, please check it out at affectautism.com. Let's get into capacity for it is a big one. I know Ooh. I was, you know, oh, will Huge. my son get to capacity for will he get there? And he started to get there about four years ago and he's still working on it four years later. It's there's so much to capacity for. So it's Absolutely. called shared problem solving is what it's called and Colette you know mentioned earlier the child putting up their hands to get picked up I'm thinking of the child who points to the cookie up or or a toy up on the shelf pulls the mom by the hand to come get me that toy that's shared problem solving but that's a very simplistic overview of what the capacity is absolutely it's one part of it and at this capacity, we're looking for an individual to use multiple circles of communication in what we call a continuous flow. So those circles between yourself and the individual go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the individual can use that type of an exchange to solve those social problems like Daria said, I want the cookie or I want the toy or I want to go outside and I need somebody to open the door for me or I can't get my toy to work and I need somebody to help me get my toy to work. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that developing sense of self and, and agency, knowing what I can do to the world, what I can get other people to do. You know, when, when we drop the spoon off the high chair and mom or dad or caregiver bends down and pick it up. Oh, and what does our little one do? they drop it again because oh wow look what I can I can get this person to do at, at this capacity I look for an individual to be able to say no and to say yes so that they have the sense of agency for themselves on on AAC devices I want to know I don't want to do this button I want a button that says leave me alone so that the individual can advocate for themselves so that they can develop that sense of agency. And then another thing that happens at this capacity is the development of ideas, the ideation. Oh, I see that toy. I have an idea about what I'm gonna do with it. So I think that the, the reason why we teach capacity for twice, we do it in our 201, and again in our 202 is because it's such a big capacity and such a powerful time. 
It's a really hard time for though, for parents and caregivers because in a neurotypical child, this is what we would call the terrible twos. This is when the child wants to do things themselves. And we hear no daddy and no mommy, I do myself. And that's a hard one for a lot of people. Um, I think they're called the terrific twos because I love to see what's gonna, what's gonna happen today with kiddos at this capacity. And I think about my son's journeys into the fourth capacity where he was really experimenting with cause and effect with people, with peers, with us. Um, it looked different than the terrible twos in a neurotypical child. Um, he discovered that when he didn't like brushing his teeth and he smacked dad in the face and dad, who's always quiet and non-responsive said, don't do that. Woo. I got a reaction out of dad. So he started smacking the kids at school's faces and going, ow, and then laughing. And, and that might be seen as such a, a inappropriate behavior. You can't smack other kids. Of course not. But from his point of view, he's not yet at the theory of mind, understanding what another person is experiencing. He's at the stage of, I smack, I get this fun reaction out of this person. Ooh, cause and effect. Uh, in the same way that dropping the spoon down and mom picks it up or or spilling. I, I did the little scientist podcast with Virginia Spielman where I said he would knock down everybody's drinks to see the cause and effect. But then he started sliding it slowly and looking at me, watching me going, no, and like delaying it like a little schemer and then spilling it. <laughs> right. To see what would happen. We as adults know what's going to happen. Kiddos don't. They're experimenting with what's happening in their world. Um, and, and if there's too much no, no, no that we impose on kiddos, that, that um, experience of what's gonna happen next is lost. And while it's hard for us to watch as a kiddo spills, all of that have some paper towels handy and show them this is what it's spilled but now this is what we do next um, it, it, i love for this capacity to be all about curiosity and exploration i want kiddos to just be exploring touching everything figuring out how things work at this capacity and it's also the beginning of imaginary play. And I know sometimes when people learn the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, they say the fifth capacity is symbolic, imaginary play, this and that, and you think of that as five. And so people will say, oh, my child's in capacity five. But really, that early imaginary play is in the fourth capacity. And it starts out simplistic, where my son will be imitating uh, scripts that he saw in PJ masks or whatever, and he'll he'll act out what he's seen from his memory. It's not yet a generation of an idea of his own. It's just right. mimicking different play scenarios and they're very simple sequences. And the other thing that comes in in the fourth capacity is understanding that something has a beginning, a middle and an end. So learning how to sequence a, a story or um, you know, in a game, like trying to get the child to understand that. And, and that those things were struggles 
that I think my son just now is starting to master those other parts because he wasn't doing imaginary play for the longest time. I thought, is it ever going to happen? And then a few years ago, we did start to see these little imaginary things when he was in the bathtub playing with the little characters. And I was like, oh, it's starting. <laughs> yeah. And, and when we think about the first two capacities, we think about sensory play. So things that make a noise, make a sound, um, bright lights that provide movement. So if our little one was playing with Elsa and Anna in a sensory way, they would get banged. They might get tossed up in the air. Um, they may go in and out and in and out of something for the sensory experience. But then when we move up to capacities three and four, now we've got that functional play using things the way they were meant to be used. So now Elsa and Anna might um, go up into the ice castle, like you said about um, using scripts, using movies. Uh, those are the things that a kiddo starts with, an individual starts with when they're on that road to more symbolic play. So these guys would sing, they would go to the ice castle, they would live happily ever after. When we get up to the next capacities, five and six, now that symbolic play has a storyline that's not the movie. So now maybe Elsa and Anna are going to go, and one kiddo that I play with, they now go over and play with Godzilla and King Kong, and they go on adventures together there. So that's, that's more along the lines of coming up with a story that's different from just watching the movie. And the other thing to think about at this capacity, as, as you mentioned briefly, Daria, is that theory of mind, of understanding another person's point of view. We, we just start to begin that in this capacity. And so what I, what I talk a lot about at this capacity is that word sharing. One of my least favorite words is sharing. When we ask someone to share, basically we're saying to them, listen, that other person, they really want to use that thing and they want to have a good time with it too. And so we're going to have to give it to them. And if you are not at a point where you can understand somebody else's point of view, sharing only means you're taking my toy. I don't know why, and I'm going to feel like I'm not safe anymore and I'm going to react in fight or flight or have a meltdown because I don't know what's going on. So thinking about that idea of sharing and um, how can we make it less painful when we're insisting on sharing. Something to think about at this capacity. Yeah, and I think about um, going to play with the Thomas the Train table at the bookstore, which of course, these things don't exist anymore post COVID, but back when my son was two, <laughs> bring him to play with the Thomas train at the bookstore and all the parents telling all their little two year olds to share. <laughs> I would just be like shaking my head, like, come on, you know, <laughs> they, no. they don't understand sharing at this. Don't point. understand sharing. Sharing means I can consider how somebody else might feel and I can change what I'm doing so that I make sure that they feel the way that they need to feel too. And that doesn't happen yet. We got a little ways to go before we get really good at that piece. 
So thinking about sharing and, and um, when to expect it is important. Yes, and I wanna bring up a point about the teaching sharing piece in a second here. Um, but let's uh, get into the fifth capacity, which you know gets into a lot more of a, um, we call them the higher capacities because now your children are not in the concrete world as much. They're getting into the abstract world. And Dr. Tippy talks about this so much, how for him, the tipping point is really getting from the concrete world to the abstract world where children can say, I see an idea that's there and I have an idea in my own head and I can put the two together and come up with something new. And that's really where he's thinking the real work of floor time is. Um, and that, that really is such a higher developmental process than everything we've been talking about up until now. So, um, you know, the fifth capacity where you're having emotional ideas uh and as you said there's a storyline and and it's really about generating your own ideas isn't it it, it is and in this capacity we're able to hold a picture in our head we don't have to have elsa and anna in front of us anymore we can think about elsa and anna and hold that picture in our head we have more emotions at this capacity. We bring in more feelings and we we put them into our play now. Um, we also have, this is where the beginning of those academics should be because now I'm able to hold a picture in my head of those two circles on top of each other that mean this many. So being able to be symbolic and if somebody says apple, we don't have, an, have to have an apple in front of us for us to think, oh, yeah, that apple is red and juicy and it's good to eat. So that's a big piece of this also is being able to hold those pictures in our head and, and know if I want macaroni and cheese or peanut butter and jelly for lunch because I can hold a picture of each of them in my head and say, oh, the macaroni and cheese is warm, but it's a hot day out, I think I'll have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So being able to, to hold those into your head also. And uh, we're sort of skimming through here for, for uh, sake of time, but the sixth capacity then is building bridges between these ideas and logical thinking. Yes, yes. So being able to say um, that your car toy car you're playing with is on its way to Florida so that you can go see grandma and grandma's going to make you cookies. So you're combining a whole bunch of things about grandma, where she is, what she's going to do, the fact that you're going to her house, you're putting that all together. This is where WH questions happen. The who, what, where, when, why, and how, this, this is when we get to figure that piece out. Why do you want to go outside? Well, it's because I really like going on the swing and it's nice out. So I want to go out on the swing for a little while. That's the WH questions. We also understand time and space more. So you can think about last week, tomorrow, next month. When we see kindergartens um, or preschoolers now actually doing calendar work, we're assuming 
that that individual is at capacity six and knows what next month means. It means it's something in the future. So this is the capacity where that ability to do your calendar work comes in. And a couple of things that I see come up here with parents is confusion around what each of those last two things you mentioned mean. So a lot of times we'll say to kids, we'll ask WH questions and they'll have heard someone answer them and have memorized scripts and they'll say, oh, my child can answer WH questions. But it's not about answering. It's about do they, can they think about it and understand the meaning and generate an idea and answer in that way. So, you know, there are different ways you could just test that out by just asking questions in different ways. And if they don't really answer, mm -hmm. then you understand, okay, they're not really thinking at that capacity yet. And a strategy to use to try and kind of bulk that up is when you're in play with a child, never asking a question in play that you already know the answer to. So we're not asking what color is that or how many blocks do you have? Because we already know the answer to that. What we wanna know is where is the car going or what are you building? Now the individual has to think. They're the only ones who know where they're sending their car, not us. And think about, um, you know, I, I can think about neurotypical little kids, you know, when they're in this stage and, and they'll have these elaborate answers of where the car is going and what they're doing in this, you know, rich imagination. Mm -hmm. And that's more what we're thinking about as opposed to they've memorized a script, they've heard their brother or sister say, I'm going to the store or, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. It's, it's really about thinking. It's called, you know, emotional and logical thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and around time and space, a, a lot of people think their children understand time and space. And, and I mentioned this in many podcasts in the past about how I always, you know, from such an early age with my son would say, yesterday we did this, tomorrow we're doing this, five more days till the train show, four more days till the train show, three more days to the train show. Oh yes, my son understands time. And then driving dad to the go train on the way to school one day, and then going to pick him up on the same route after dinner when it was dark out and my son started crying and said, no school, no school. And I said, you already went to school today. No, we're not going to school. And I was like, he has no concept of time. He doesn't understand it yet. And it's, it's easy to misunderstand that our kids get that because, well, they go to school, they understand. But even to this day, my son will, will mix up week, month, day. And he mm -hmm. asks a lot of questions. So I know he's trying to figure it out. He'll say, how many, how many days till that? How many months? How many minutes? Like he's really trying to figure it out. And it's, it's a complicated thing to understand time when our kids are living in the moment. It's hard to think that there's this, you know, like it, it's so hard to wait for birthday because more presents are coming on my birthday. So ever since Christmas, every day, when, when is it gonna be May? I want it to be May. 
April should go in the garbage, he says. <laughs> and he just goes on and on and on. Every day is this big drama. But when is May coming? It's really hard to wait. And you know, the advent calendars for Christmas help yes. kids count down time till Christmas and, you know, different kinds of things that help with that. But those are all cognitive ways to understand it. And our kids really need that, you know, feeling of what does it feel like to experience right. an hour or a day or a month. <laughs> right, right. And, and starting small is important. We don't, we want to start with the passage of time in small increments. And, and I think one of the great things that we, strategies that we can use is the warnings, you know, five minute warning, one minute warning, we're leaving in one minute and experiencing what does one minute feel like? We have to wait one minute and then we can eat the ice cream. And we're, oh, it's not, not time yet, not time yet. We've waited one minute, yay. So starting in that smaller increments to help individuals make meaning again, of what does a minute mean? We know a minute is shorter than an hour because we've made meaning of those things. Our kiddos need, might need some support in making the, those distinctions. And I will say that, um, you know, my son is definitely working in, you know, capacities four, five, and six, but I will, you know, he, he will play out different Mario Kart video games with his Hot Wheels cars and with, you know, he, he can use blocks to represent buildings now. So he's getting some symbolic imaginary play in there. But um, I was speaking with Dr. Tippy and showed him a bit of a video where I was like really trying to question what he understood. So uh, Dr. Tippy said when he's imaginary playing, he's still mapping from memory a video game scene into his play and what we want to do is say something like what bowser pushed them into the lava i would never do something like that why would bowser push someone into the lava and so i was starting to question him on things like that and he was like um uh, because he's a bad guy. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Like he would yeah. just sort of understand little simple things, but he's not yet really comprehending and getting these new ideas. So just continually putting these wonder statements out to him, Dr. Tippy said, like every single day, like, but why would anyone do that? Mm -hmm. hmm, to get him think like, what is mom thinking about that's different than what's in my head? and get him really thinking, 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 like really this is the capacities where you're pushing thinking. <laughs> Absolutely, it, and supporting an individual at this capacity um, sometimes is nerve wracking for us. It, it, it is because we have to do that Oscar winning performance again. And I love the idea of us thinking about how individuals go up that developmental ladder but then the other piece of it is we're on the developmental ladder and you could be playing one day with your son at that same task but you might have had a really hard night's sleep and so your regulation is in question your ability to play at that higher level might be a little bit off so you might 
have to, for yourself, bring the play down a little bit to work it back up again. So we bring so much to our interactions that we have to think about where the child is, but also where am I? And am I in this moment able to have social reciprocity? Can I work at capacities three and four with my own individual differences, my own profile in that moment? There are particular days, if I'm having a high pain day because I have a chronic illness, that having social reciprocity for me is hard. A continuous flow is difficult. I can open and close a few circles, but getting to capacity four and up, that's hard because I'm just not feeling it. If that particular day I also had to play with a kiddo working at the higher capacities, that's going to be difficult for me and I need to attune differently. And Colette has segued us right into what we want to end off the podcast with about gauging our own uh, capacities because there are, are many things that parents do where we kind of forget about this. And uh, we've mentioned some of them. Um, you just mentioned one about, you know, when, when we're not feeling regulated. So Kashina talked about this a lot in the co-regulatory support podcast, you know, checking in with ourselves. How do I feel in this moment? Um, but let's talk about some of the things that parents do, which is, uh, you know, directing their child. So go get your shoes, get this, do this, or, you know, even in play, like, oh, look, here's this guy, put him on the boat. He goes on the boat. Oh, look, the boat goes in the water and telling our children, teaching our children, teach, teach, direct, direct, direct. Where is that on the developmental capacities? Is that engaging and getting a back and forth at the second and third capacities, Colette? Well, I, I think that there's two different scenarios that you had talked about. In life, we all know that there are things we have to do, like yes. get your shoes, you know, go put your coat on, and then we have to get in the car. So sometimes we have to give those kind of directions. Our kiddos first need to be regulated in order to hear that. They need to be engaged with us in order to attend to that. And they need to have meaning making in order to act on what you're asking. So that's one piece to think about. Do Are they regulated, engaged, and do they have the meaning making of what we're asking? The other piece of that um, is in play when, when we want the play to go the right way. If we're playing with boats, boats are supposed to go in the water, somebody drives the boat, they might water ski behind it, they might fish off the boat because that's our idea. But we don't know if that's our, our play partner's idea. Maybe their idea is the boat's going to the moon. And so we have to be okay with that. We have to be able to stay regulated and engaged in the play when somebody wants to do something different than what our idea was. When we say follow the child's lead, we mean that individual's ideas, not our ideas. And that might be harder with the child who's in sensory play, who's just throwing stuff and banging stuff. And yeah. we need to engage at where mm -hmm. they are at on the capacities and watch our own capacities. If, that, if a child or an individual is throwing, that's what they can do with that object or that plaything. So if we want to join it, get a bucket and catch them. Bring them all back. 
hand them back to the individual, go back to our spot and catch them again. Now we've got reciprocity around something that they can do. And that's a great tip for throwing for sure. Um, we already talked about the asking questions. If we're asking questions, we're here at engaging six. at six and our children may not be. Correct. Um, you already mentioned not waiting for a child to respond. That's another thing that parents time. do. Mm -hmm. The gift of time, uh, the, yep, using that technique of just waiting, giving them a chance to respond. Because mm -hmm. if we're continually jumping in, we're not waiting for the circle to be returned, the back and forth communication. And sometimes mm -hmm. that takes a lot longer than we expect. I remember an occupational therapist saying, um, oh, he walked around to the other side of the room, but did you notice he came right back and engaged? He might've just needed to move his body to stay in the interaction and yeah. then it continued. And here he walked away. I just assumed I lost him, but he came right back. Yeah. Um, and That's another thing of relationships, they always come back. Yep. Um, another thing parents do is they respond to a child's response with an unrelated new idea. So that sort of goes back to what you said where um, like they might want to go to the moon and then the parents might say, like, ignore that and then say, oh, but the boat is over here in the water or something. That's, I'm, that's not the best example, but to go off your example. Um, instead of staying attuned with the child and staying with the child's interest in the child's idea, right. even if it's nonsensical to us, we want to validate that idea that they generated and go with that, even if it's throwing something across the room. Because that's what they can do in that moment. And so that's what we follow is that that throwing, if that's what's happening, figure out how to make it um, interactive. I, I once had a kiddo who just wanted a piece of string and just would bounce the piece of string in front of their face. Um, and most people would take the string from him. And I got my own string and we just stood together bouncing that string until eventually we were able to swap our strings and each have our own, uh, have the string of the other person. And that made it reciprocal. And I noticed that sometimes if parents don't know what to do, they'll just grab another toy. They'll think, oh, maybe they'll like this toy instead. So then they'll bring in a new toy and try to do that. Yes. When really you want to just stay with whatever they're doing mm -hmm. and try and engage around that. Mm -hmm. I was working with a mom yesterday who was talking about the fact that when she was playing, uh, if if this the child was playing with blocks, she would think, oh, if he's playing with blocks, then I can go get this toy and this toy and add to it. And I said, that's your idea, not his idea. He might not need anything added to it to come up with great ideas. Yep. Um, and another thing parents do, you also alluded to this, using too many words. So when we're using too many words and our children can't take it in, we'll notice they start to sort of, we lose their attention, we lose their engagement. And that's where we have to gauge our own capacities and come down to where they're at to meet them where they're at developmentally. And it might be back down to gestural communication. If that's whether the individual is in that moment. And thinking about a, a, a child who, or an individual who may typically be at capacity six, but 
the, a car horn went off and they're back down to feel not feeling safe. We've got to move them back up again. In that moment, we're not going to use a lot of language because when you're not feeling safe, you're not regulated, that language processing is not going to be there. So you we hear might the, have to do you, it ourselves. You hear the Charlie Brown teacher. And uh, the last thing I wanted to cover is, you know, when our kids get distressed, a lot of times we're like, you're okay, you're okay, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And we rush our children through that distress. And, and I was a perfect example of this. I, it was so distressing for me to see my child go through um, trauma in the hospital when he had to get numerous IVs and all of that stuff. He was in the hospital for four months when he was two that I did not want to see him uncomfortable ever. And it distressed me so much when he was uncomfortable. I just did whatever I could, you know, um, breastfed him right away to soothe him or whatever, instead of tolerating a little bit of distress and trying to help him work through it. And Kashina gave wonderful examples of how to co-regulate through distress in the podcast a few weeks ago. But do you have anything to add about that? Yeah, I, I think an important piece of this is um, to allow the individual to feel felt. If somebody is injured or hurt or perceived injury to themselves, if we say you're fine, now that individual is not feeling like we felt their pain, that we're, we're uh, um, on the same page here. Um, and I think about the study that was done, I wanna say right when we went into COVID, it, it came out um, about individuals who did not have their needs met when they were younger. And so they stopped trusting the signals that their body was making. So their interception sense of understanding the signals of their internal organs um, was, not, was not good. It, it was um, had some faulty, understanding um, because they didn't realize or, or their feeling felt about the cry when they were hungry was not met. And so they didn't trust that signal anymore. So I, I, I think that we really need to tune in to that person's emotional state in that moment so that we can help them to feel felt, which then leads to that secure attachment and that nice safe relationship that we need for development. Yes. Um, well, this was great information, a lot of information. Thank you so much, Colette, for walking us through the developmental ladder. And if anyone has questions, uh, check the blog post. I put links to a lot of the other podcasts that describe a lot of these concepts in more detail. And um, we'll be talking again real soon, Colette. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.